Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Blair. If, if you're challenged on, on the Bible, the veracity of the Bible, if somebody came to you and said, I know that you believe that this is the word of God, but what makes it different than any other religious book? How would you answer them? Where do we draw our confidence that this book actually is breathed out by God? That the ultimate author of this book is the Holy Spirit working through prophets and apostles through the ages. Is it just something that we blindly say, why? Well, I just believe it, so I believe it, which is okay, but it's not going to help you when you get out into the world and somebody challenges that belief. When you're not in the, in the, the comfort and the safety of, of like-minded people in the church, how, how are you going to defend the fact that you believe that this is the very word of God? Today, I want to give you one answer to that challenge. How do we have a rock-solid confidence that this is not just some man's book? That the ultimate author of this book is God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So that's what we're going to look at today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is your word. That you have spoken through prophets and apostles and you have preserved your scriptures for us. And, and when we read any passage from this book, we can say, thus says the Lord. We believe it. I pray that you would help us to know why we believe it. Give us such a, a deep confidence in this book as your word. And in so doing, give us such a deep confidence in the gospel that we are trusting for our salvation and eternal life even in the face of death. And then, Lord, send us out into the world as your ambassadors to share the good news that you wrote a book and in it are the words of eternal life. Glorify yourself today as always and build up your church i pray this in jesus name amen today uh, we're going to take a look at the torah again and in so doing what i hope will become evident is this is this is profoundly preordained for the gospel and, and what i mean by that is when we really step back and take a look at the, at the Torah and say, this is history recorded hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. History that, that is thousands of years before Jesus ever came, written down uh, probably by Moses, ultimately, over a thousand years before Jesus came, and yet it points so specifically to the gospel. And therein is the confidence that I draw from this, that this is the word of God, 
this is his gospel as presented in time and space and in scripture long before the Messiah ever came to this earth. Blair read for us uh, a well-known passage out of Matthew's Gospel, beginning of the Sermon of the Mount. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the Nevi'im, law and the prophets. I put it in the Hebrew so that we could hear what Jesus is saying. I think sometimes we don't fully understand what Jesus is saying because we don't realize that the law is more than just a set of rules. The law, when Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish, to supersede, to undo, to move away from the Torah. Everything that you need to know about the gospel is in the Torah, in the law. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does that mean? The only way that we can know what this means is to understand what the law is. And there are three things that the law could be. And and context is important. Uh, Do we have any C.S. Lewis readers here? C.S. Lewis writes about the Tao. And the Tao is just the word that he gives to God's universal moral law. And he makes the observation, you just look at any world religion, you, you drop yourself down on any deserted island, and you find a community of human beings, pretty much everyone knows what is right and what is wrong. There's a universal moral law. So sometimes when the Bible is talking about the law, the Bible is talking about that universal moral law that we just instinctively know right from wrong. Murder is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Bearing false witness is wrong. You don't need to be a Christian to know that. Sometimes in the Bible, when, uh, when there's a reference to the law, the, it's a reference to what we would call the Old Covenant, or the law that God specifically gave to Israel through Moses. So the law sometimes is the 613 statutes and regulations that God gave to Israel through the prophet Moses. I think in a Reformed tradition, of which we are, that is the most common understanding that we bring to the table when we think of law. We're thinking about those rules and statutes. There's nothing wrong with that. A lot of times that's exactly what Paul is talking about, but not always. There's a third definition of law, which if Jesus is going to say, I haven't come to abolish the law, the Torah, he means the universal moral law. He means the 613 rules and statutes that God gave through Moses. But he also means the first five books of the Bible in total. Just listen as I read to you from Galatians 4, verses 21 to 24. Remember, the issue in Galatians was that people felt that they had to be circumcised in order to become Jewish before they could become Christian. And Paul says, you have a warped understanding of the gospel. And so he addresses them because he's talking to Judaizers or people who want to put themselves under the law. And by the law there, what they mean is under the 613 statutes. So they say, in order to be a Christian, we have to continue to keep the 613 rules and regulations of the old covenant. That's what they understood. Listen to what Paul, uh, yeah, what Paul says in Galatians 4.21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, meaning the 613 statutes, do you not listen to the law, meaning the first five books of the Bible? 
What Paul has done there is he's used the word law in two different ways. You who desire to put yourself under the rules and regulations, do you not listen to the Torah, meaning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? The, the whole plot sequence, the whole kit and caboodle, the whole package. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, dot, 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 and then he continues. What Paul is saying there is, if you want to understand the Old Testament scriptures, you can't just lift rules and regulations out of the Bible, put yourself under them, and pat yourself on the back and say, wow, I'm a good Christian. In fact, you'll miss the bigger point. Paul says, listen, you who want to put yourself under the Torah or under the law, the rules and regulations, have you not listened to the Torah? If you've listened, if you've heard, you'll see that God was writing to us about the gospel allegorically. What is an allegory? An allegory is a, a, a story or illustration that really is signifying something bigger. That's what we're going to look at today. I want to take a look at the full plot sequence of the Torah. We want to listen to the Torah in order to understand the gospel. There's eight steps that we're going to go through. The first is that of exile. You're going to hear some repeat if you've been here over the last month. So the Torah begins with exile. Secondly, slavery. Thirdly, Passover. Fourth, Red Sea. Fifth, Covenant. Sixth, they're taught how to worship. Seventh, they spend a generation in the wilderness. And then eighth and finally, they are poised to go into the promised land. This is the Torah. This is what Paul meant. You who want to put yourself under the law, have you not listened to the Torah? Listen to the Torah. See the shape of the Torah and be saved. Let's fill that out. We're going to start by, by seeing exactly what the Torah says about these eight plot points. Let's begin in exile. And this is a little bit of review. If you were here three weeks ago, we went over this in greater depth. But we begin, and you can follow along with me. Open your Bible to Genesis 3. We're just going to hopscotch through the Torah some important passages to get a, a sense for the whole. And of course, it's best if you read the whole five books of the Bible, but we won't do that this morning. Genesis 3.24 makes the, the profound point that the Torah, like the whole Bible, begins with a brutal exile. Genesis 3, 24, because of the sin, the disobedience, the rebellion of Adam and his wife, now named Eve, God drove out the man, exile. He drove him out at the east of the Garden of Eden and placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so from that point forward, humanity is exiled from Eden, and in being exiled from Eden, we're exiled from God. 
the Bible begins with exile. And we see that things just go ba- from bad to worse, from Adam to Noah, from Noah to the Tower of Babel. And then God says, I don't like exile as the last word on my creative story. So he picks for himself a man by the name of Abram. He'll be later named, uh, renamed Abraham. And he says, I want to give you a set of promises. I want you to leave your country and your kindred, your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. I'm going to bless you and make your name great. Everyone who blesses you, I will bless. But those who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a great hinge point in the redemptive story. As we go from just bad to worse, sin and exile and slavery and judgment and destruction to God saying, I'm just going to bless you. It's going to be all about me and none about you. And you get down to verse 7 in Genesis 12. And he says, Abraham, I want you to go to this land. I want you to see this land. This is the land that I'm going to give to you and to your descendants. So then the rest of Genesis is sort of helping us trace the the line of who is going to inherit this land. Eventually, Abram and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Esau is, is the line of promise. Esau, uh, sorry, not Esau, Jacob is the line of promise. And Jacob has 12 sons. The line of promises passes from Jacob to who? Not Joseph, but to Judah. We're going to see in a month ahead from Judah to David, from David to Christ. So Genesis is just helping us trace that line. And we see how God works with a sinful family to protect his promise to give a land to a people but we start the torah in exile and then at the end of genesis we're surprised because abraham's family is not in the land that god had promised and we end genesis again in exile this time in egypt and while in exile in egypt we get to our second plot point which is slavery just flip forward to Exodus chapter 1. So we are now with Abraham's family, Jacob and Joseph and Judah and all the brothers, and they are in exile in Egypt, and then we're told a few generations later, this family is not only exiled from the land that God had promised, but they are enslaved. Exodus 1, verses 8 through 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar, in brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." Abraham's family, the family of promise, the family through whom every family on earth will be blessed is in exile and they are enslaved. 
They're enslaved for 430 years. And over the course of 12 chapters in the book of Exodus, four centuries pass. And we get to the time of Moses, and the people are crying out to God, and God remembers his promise to Abraham. He says, I will deliver you from slavery. And so he sends Moses to approach, to confront Pharaoh. He says, God has sent me to ask you to let his people go. And Pharaoh says, no. God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that God can send plagues on Egypt to prove that he alone is God. And these Egyptian gods are false idols and demons with no power. The tenth and final plague we looked at last week is the Passover. The firstborn of every house died, whether it was a rich family, a poor family, a slave family, whether it was from the livestock, the animals, the firstborn of every family whether human or animal in Egypt died, except for those who put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts and lintels. When God passed through Egypt, he passed over those houses and no one died. And so through the Passover, God broke Pharaoh. And the people of Egypt were in such fear and dread of these people for whom God passed over that, that Pharaoh said, I have no choice but to let you go. And so Abram's family is delivered by the blood of the Lamb. And we see in Exodus 12 a great reversal of Genesis 3 and Exodus 1, an end to slavery. And these people are en route out of exile to the land that God had promised. We see on the horizon the end of exile as well. So they're on their way to the promised land, and God takes them to uh, the Red Sea, and Pharaoh changes his mind, and Pharaoh is coming in, and they have no escape route. Pharaoh has changed his mind. He wants to destroy these slaves, and they begin to cry out, and they begin to complain against Moses. Why have you brought us here to die in the wilderness? It would have been better if we were slaves in Egypt, and God says, no, I'm not going to let you perish on the shore of the Red Sea, and so he commands Moses in Exodus 14, if you just Flip forward to Exodus 14. God says, stretch out your hand and your staff over the waters. Exodus 14, verse 21. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. This is like all of uh, the military power of the United States right now. If, if we could split the ocean, because <laughs> we would need an ocean and you put all of their weaponry on the, on the dry ground in the Atlantic Ocean. This is what this is like. So all of the military power of Egypt is on dry ground with water on both sides. And in the morning, uh, the Egyptians, sorry, verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud look down 
on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them, but against us, the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So the fourth part of our journey through the Torah is this just awesome event at the Red Sea that marked the deliverance that had been accomplished by Passover. After they get to the other side of the Red Sea, they're free. And, and did you notice how God parted the waters by a strong east wind? I, I don't know. That might just have been pragmatic, and that's the wind that was needed to separate the waters. But it's interesting to me that Adam and Eve were exiled to the east, and it was a wind coming from the east to the west that parted the waters and opened the door that would bring them to the end of their exile. I don't know if I'm digging too deep there or not. I might be reading too much into it. But I think it is an interesting point. Uh, fifthly, we come to covenant. So they travel after having passed through the waters of the Red Sea. They go to Mount Sinai where they enter into covenant with God. Flip forward to Exodus 24. In Exodus 20, they receive the Ten Commandments. In Exodus, the second half of Exodus 20 to the beginning of chapter 24, they receive more rules and regulations. It's called the Book of the Covenant. And then they enter into covenant with God at the base of Mount Sinai. Exodus 24, verses 3 to 8. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. This is how we think about law, right? He gave them the law. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down, wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men... Uh, of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. That's Exodus 20 to 23. That's the book of the covenant. He read that in the hearing of all the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
So they enter into covenant. And what marks their covenant with God? But the sacrifice of animals and the blood of those animals filled in basins, half put on the altar and half thrown against the crowd so the blood was dripping over them. As a mark, they had entered into covenant with God. We see here in this covenant, we call this the old covenant, God's gracious deliverance. God didn't require them to be morally upright, sinless people before he brought them out of slavery. But then once they were out of slavery and they entered into covenant with God, he says, this is how I want you to respond to my gracious deliverance of you out of bondage. These are the rules and statutes that I want you to keep. And so the old covenant, if we read it carefully, though it's based on God's grace, there is very clearly in the old covenant conditions. There's blessings and curses. If you get to the end of Deuteronomy, you, you hear blessings if they keep covenant, curses if they break covenant, so that the old covenant was conditional upon Israel's ability to keep the rules and statutes that God delivered to them through Moses. After this, we get to the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, God basically teaches his people, this is how I want you to worship me. And, you know, it grieves me. I get it. I understand the joke. But it grieves me how glib we are in the church about the book of Leviticus. We just make fun of it as a boring book. We, we groan when we come to it. Is this too not the word of God? And, and, and more than that, I don't know how we would construct Christian doctrine and gospel belief without the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, we get all of the instructions for worship. And, and so we see, we could break it down at the beginning and the end, we get uh, a very detailed description of all of the sacrifices. These are the sacrifices that I want you to make to me. Burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, fellowship offerings, and grain offerings. At the end of Leviticus, we get these are, this is how I want you to organize your time. These are the festivals and the feasts that I want you to mark in your annual rhythm of life to remember who I am as your God and what I have done for you and what I promise to continue to do for you. And then just inside the beginning and the end, we get instructions for the priesthood, the, the high priest and all of the priests that will work at the tabernacle. We learn about how a priest is to be ordained and how a priest is held to a higher standard than the rest with regard to holiness. Then in the middle of the book, we get uh, all these regulations about holiness, that which is clean and unclean and holy. And we're, we're taught what pleases God with our moral behavior. What does it mean to be holy as God is holy? in our conduct, in our behavior with one another. And then right in the middle of the book is the Day of Atonement, where you have two goats. One goat is a sacrificial goat. The high priest once a year is to kill the goat, drain the blood, and go into the Holy of Holies once a year, and to take the blood of the goat and to cover 
the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which housed the Ten Commandments and a jar of manna and Aaron's uh, staff that had budded. And that would appease the wrath of God. That would propitiate God's anger against the people. Propitiation just means to satisfy God's anger against sin. And God would be satisfied for a year by the blood of that goat. And then there was another goat called the scapegoat. And the scapegoat, the, the high priest would put his hands on that goat and confess all the sin of Israel on that goat and then send it into the wilderness. And that goat would uh, figuratively carry the sin of Israel far away from Israel and die alone on a hill far away. The book of Leviticus is just a stunning book of a holy God's desire to dwell among an unholy people. It's all about worship. It's interesting also that in the Torah, there's very little about singing worship to God. It's all about sacrifice and at, uh, rituals. It's not until we get to the Psalms in the time of David that David adds five books of Psalms to the five books of the Torah to complement the worship of the Torah, which is all activity and works with music and poetry and prayer. Seventh, after receiving the law, they've built their tabernacle, they've been given instructions for worship. They are to make the two-week journey by foot to the promised land. So they go into the wilderness. They should have just been two weeks. But we know that they lacked faith to enter the promised land. So they end up spending an entire generation in the wilderness. And the whole book of Numbers is about uh, their, their wandering in the wilderness. We have a census at the beginning of the book of Numbers of the Exodus generation. That generation dies except for Joshua and Caleb. And then we get a census of the wilderness generation that will go into the promised land plus Joshua and Caleb. Now, the book of Numbers is another book that we disparage in the church. And yet, there's probably no book in the Old Testament that's more relevant for us in the church. And we'll get to that because we can learn so much from Israel in the wilderness. Just flip to near to the end of the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 8. After 40 years in the wilderness, Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses gives to the people before they enter into the promised land. And in this chapter, Deuteronomy 8, Moses is reflecting back on the book of Numbers. And what he wants to tell this wilderness generation before they go into the promised land, I hope that you know why we spent a generation in the book of Numbers. He didn't say it quite that way. Uh, but why is the book of Numbers there? Take a look at chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, verses 1 through 6. The whole commandment that I command you today, says Moses to Israel, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Bracket, the book of Numbers, end bracket. So why the book of Numbers? Why 40 years in the wilderness? Moses is going to tell you. That he might humble you. 
that he might test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. Why the book of Numbers? Why 40 years in the wilderness? There's three reasons. To humble God's people, to test God's people, and to discipline God's people. In other words, in all three of those, to prepare them to enter the land properly. What did they learn about themselves in the book of Numbers? They learned that they were a stiff-necked, grumbling people that did not deserve the land. And if you continue reading in Deuteronomy 9, that's exactly the point that God makes. When you go into the land to take possession of the land that I promised your father Abraham, do not for a moment think that you deserve this land. I proved it to you 40 years in the wilderness. But I'm going to give it to you because I promised to give it to you. This is about my grace. It's about my kindness. It's about my lavish generosity to you, humble you, test you. Uh, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're right with God, but it's through the trials of wilderness that Israel learned that they were not right with God. They, they were tested and found wanting which compelled them to cry out to God for grace and mercy. Thirdly, discipline. Through discipline, God prepared them. He taught them. He built them up. So though they weren't perfect, they were in a better position, having been humbled and tested and disciplined to take the land properly. And you get into the first book of, of the, uh, the former prophets, Joshua, they, their hearts are in the right place of the work that God had done in them those 40 years in the wilderness. Finally, we come to the promised land. They don't, Israel doesn't actually go into the promised land in the Torah, but they're right on the edge of it. We're going to keep reading in Deuteronomy 8, verse 7. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are ironed and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. We're a long ways from Genesis 3 at the end of the Torah, coming into a good land. What we've just done in these 25 minutes or so, half an hour, what we've done is really take a look at the whole Torah. What, what, if you followed what we just did, you understand God's big picture view, his purpose in the history of his people and in the writing of these first five books of the Bible. That's the Torah. I've also hinted, and you know where I'm going, 
but let's make it explicit. That's also the gospel. We have this idea about law and gospel that, well, the law was the old covenant, rules and regulations, things that you have to do or else you will be judged and cursed. I'm not denying that there is that function amongst the statutes of the old covenant. But the law is so much more than that. The law is this story of a people and God's gracious interaction with them. That's the law. The law is full of grace. And so this distinction between law and grace, law and gospel, is a false distinction. At least the way we're looking at it this morning. Because the law is all about God's grace. Do not for a moment think that you deserve this land. Do not think for a moment that in these 40 years somehow you were able to keep the law a little better than your dad and your mom and your granddad and your grandma. You're just as wicked. But I'm going to give you the land. It's a good land. Because this has never been about your ability to be good enough. It's never been about your righteousness. Go back and read Genesis 12. It was never about Abraham's ability. God, when he made those promises to Abraham, made them unconditional and full of grace. God says, look, this doesn't depend on you, Abraham, or your son, or your grandson, or any of your descendants. They don't have to be righteous to receive what I'm going to give you and to them. This is not about your character, your nature, your ability to see this through. God in Genesis 12 and all the way through the law pins it on his own character, his own nature, his own ability to see this through. That's the gospel. I want you to take the weight that the devil wants to put on you and just lift it off your shoulders. It's not up to us up to God let's go through and see the gospel in the law we begin in exile we've gone over this enough we're all cut off from God because of Adam and Eve we are born we are conceived even in sin what that means is that we inherit from Adam and all of the generations from Adam to us a sin nature, and in life we act on that nature, so we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind, dead in trespasses and sin. That is exile. If God does nothing, we die, and then he judges us, and we die again by being thrown into the lake of fire. Exile. Part of our problem since the fall is slavery. We are not enslaved to Pharaoh. We are enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to our sin nature. Uh, So anyone who says that a person has free will is only speaking of Christians. Uh, Non-Christians, people who don't believe in Christ, they have an autonomous will. They make real choices, but they can only choose sin. But God comes in Christ and liberates us. You and I, if we have given Christ our sin, uh, if, if we have been saved by the gospel, now we are free, and now we do have a free will. We can choose to sin, and we are also free to choose righteousness. That is a gift given to Christians alone. 
So we are no longer enslaved if we are in Christ, but unsaved people are still enslaved to sin, and they are waiting the consummation of their exile at the final judgment. Enter the gospel. And that's the beginning of the gospel, but the salvific part, the part where we're saved. Passover. Passover is the crucifixion of Christ. He is the Passover lamb. We apply the blood of Jesus Christ to our lives by grace through faith. And we are liberated from our slavery to sin. And our journey out of exile to the promised land begins. There's a strong east wind blowing over the lives of those who have been set free by the blood of the Passover lamb. Which leads us to the Red Sea. This is why I believe in believer's baptism. The baptism corresponds to the Red Sea, not to circumcision. It's, it's not the mark, I- at least in our view in this church. There are many, many faithful Christian men and women who see this differently. I want to acknowledge that. But what we understand baptism to be here is that marking of the deliverance already achieved by Passover. It follows sequentially after we are freed from slavery and en route out of exile to the promised land. And so just as Israel was baptized in Moses, according to 1 Corinthians 10, so we mark our deliverance from slavery to sin in Christ by being baptized. And when we go under the water, we remember that Pharaoh, who represents Satan in our own sin nature, is going to get drowned in our baptism. But we come out resurrected with Christ, and our sin stays drowned in the water. This is a powerful image. So we die with Christ, we are raised with Christ. Or, another way of saying it, we are liberated from our slavery to sin with Israel, and we cross through the waters of baptism, and our slave master is drowned in our baptism, which is wonderful. And after our baptism, we enter into a new covenant with God through Christ. And the new covenant looks a lot like the old covenant. It's built upon the shadows and pictures of the old covenant. And both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are built upon God's gracious deliverance. We enter into the New Covenant with God, not because we've done something for Him, but because He's delivered us from slavery by the blood of the cross. So just like Israel responded to their deliverance by Passover, we respond to God uh, by uh, our deliverance from sin in our Passover, which is Christ. But then we get to today's scripture reading. Do not think for a moment that I've come to abolish the Torah or the Nevi'im, the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Part of what Jesus means is we now need to fill up all of those laws and respond to the fullness of God's intention in the law. We're not going to get into that today. More than that, though, Jesus is saying, I never sinned. I kept the old covenant so that you don't have to. What you were unable to do, what you were powerless to achieve, I have achieved for you. I have fulfilled all of the rules and the statutes. More than that, what I hope you see is I have fulfilled the very narrative, the history and the plot 
of the Torah. I am the Passover lamb. I am the one that leads you through the waters of baptism. It's my blood that is the blood of the new covenant, etc., etc. We'll see how this goes forward. I am your deliverer. I am your new Moses. I'm going to take you into the promised land. I'm the fullness of, of the law and the prophets. That is a dress rehearsal of the gospel. You need to see that. The whole history, everything that I did with my people was all just to teach you what the gospel is all about. I have fulfilled it. Now walk with me in the fullness of the story. The biggest difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is this. The Old Covenant was, depend, depended, or was dependent on Israel's ability to keep the rules and statutes. Blessings if you keep the laws and statutes. Curses if you don't. That's not true in the New Covenant. Jesus took upon himself all of the curses of the Old Covenant, even though he should have received all of the blessings. Again, going back to the book of Galatians, he became a curse for us. What does that mean? All of the curses of the old covenant fell on him so that we might receive the promised inheritance as children of Abraham. That's quite a trade. We sin, he doesn't. He takes the curses and gives us the blessings. So that in the new covenant, to receive the blessing does not depend at all on our ability to be good enough or righteous enough. It depends entirely on Christ's ability to be perfect in every way, to be a perfect Savior without sin. Now, I'll take the new covenant any day. Any day. So for heaven's sake, do not put yourself under the old covenant. Who would do such a thing? That's, that's insane madness to choose the old covenant over the new covenant. As Peter said, he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we could walk in newness of life. And so, yes, we respond to what Christ has done, but it does not factor into our salvation. It does not factor into our righteousness. It does not even factor in at its core to our holiness because we've already been made holy. We are saints. Circumcised hearts, obedient from the heart, who will be made perfectly holy in the end. Now, when Paul preached this kind of thing, people slandered him and said, he's preaching licentiousness and sin. He's saying you can go and sin so that grace may abound. And Paul said, that is not what I'm saying. They are slandering me. Their condemnation is deserved. And I say the same thing. I am not saying go out and sin more that grace may abound. But do not depend upon your own righteousness for deliverance. For you will fall. Now we come to worship. God directed the way that Israel was to worship him. And do you know that Christian worship is based upon the book of Leviticus and the book of Psalms? Sacrifices and festivals all fulfilled in Christ. He is the burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the fellowship offering, and the grain offering. He is the, the festival of Passover he is the festival of, 
of tabernacles and trumpets and new moons. He is the weekly Sabbath rest. He is the jubilee year. He is the feast of unleavened bread. All of it. He is the fullness of everything that was given in shadow, picture form in the Old Covenant. All of that worship is fulfilled in Christ. And we, we are still under the sacrificial system. Every one of us came today with the blood of a lamb to worship God. The blood of Jesus Christ. The priesthood. All those things about the priesthood. He is our great high priest. We are still under a system where we need a high priest to mediate our relationship with God. There is one God and one mediator, one priest between God and humankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who just happens to also be the sacrifice. Holiness, clean and unclean. Jesus says, uh, you know, food and all that other stuff, that doesn't really matter. There, there's a picture of a greater reality. That which makes you unclean is that which comes out from the heart. If you're unclean in your heart, you're unclean. That automatically everybody then that is ever born is unclean, except for those who by ritual have been made holy. You see, if you're in Christ, you're not unclean anymore. That is why we can eat pigs and mix fabrics and so on and so forth. Because Jesus has made us holy in the heart. I know we still have the flesh. I hate the flesh desire, the impulse to sin. But it's not from the heart or else Christ accomplished nothing on the cross. God has taken us from a state of uncleanness to a state of perfect holiness in the heart. We need to work out that salvation from the inside out until that great and glorious day when God glorifies us in total. And then there's the Day of Atonement. Jesus is the sacrificial goat. He is the scapegoat. There's no greater scapegoat than Jesus Christ. On him all the sin was laid. And he died alone on a hill outside the city. He took his own blood, not into the Holy of Holies, but into the holy, holy, holy place. Atoned for our sin at the very throne of God. so that heaven would be open to us, so that we could approach the throne of grace boldly. You know, before Jesus atoned for us with his own blood in the holy, holy, holy place, it was not a throne of grace, but a throne of judgment. See, Leviticus is a good book. Wilderness. After, or sorry, yeah, wilderness. After we enter into this new covenant with God, after we learn about worship, then we have to live the Christian life. The Christian life is the fulfillment of the book of Numbers. That's why there's so much for us to learn in the book of Numbers. And you know, uh, this is anecdotal a little bit, but it's there. In the book of Numbers, there's two themes that repeat themselves over and over again. The people grumble against God. They're never satisfied with what God has given them. They're not satisfied that God delivered them from slavery and has taken them out of exile to a, a, a good land flowing with milk and honey. They grumble. They complain. It's never good enough. 
and they rebel against the leaders that God puts over them. That's not mentioned once. It's mentioned over and over again. Even uh, Aaron and Miriam rebel against Moses. Korah rebels against uh, the, the, uh, the leadership. There's all kinds of rebellion against, uh, against authority. Isn't it funny how much we struggle with the same things? We're never satisfied. That's an overstatement, but do you feel it? Oh, I mean, better be careful. Like, do you realize what God has done for us? We were in slavery, deep slavery and exile. We've been liberated and we're on our way to a good land. And the manna that fell in numbers is Jesus Christ himself who sustains us through this difficult time. Uh, Christian life is hard, filled with trials that humble us and test us and discipline us. But if our faith holds through these trials, we can consider it all joy because our faith will be proven true. And we will know that we are to receive the inheritance that God has for us. If we walk by the Spirit in the wilderness, feasting on Christ, the true bread from heaven, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We'll be ready, like that wilderness generation, to enter into the land. And finally, we come to the new creation. The end of the gospel is not the Passover. Sometimes in the church, we and Passover is important, the cross is important, but the cross and Passover liberated a people to get them from slavery to the promised land. So in our thinking of the gospel, let us not just stop at the cross, but see that the cross is the great instrumentality by which God is taking us to a new heavens and a new earth. It's a good land. It's a physical land. It's a fruitful land. And we will be raised bodily from the dust of the earth to live in this new creation forever. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. One way that Jesus fulfills the Torah is by bringing substance to all of the shadows of the Torah. And this ought to give us tremendous confidence in what we believe. How do I know that this is the word of God? Because of everything I just told you, history that passed thousands of years before Jesus had come, scripture written hundreds of years before Jesus came, that perfectly articulates his mission and the gospel of his salvation. So be encouraged and be strengthened because the law is the gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see how Jesus has fulfilled the Torah for us. Help us in the wilderness to walk by faith, humbly, not testing you, but being tested through various trials and disciplined because you love us so that through every trial and temptation, tested genuineness of our faith might be proven true. And we can look forward to entering with a great mixed multitude into the land that you promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
the new heavens and the new earth. In the name of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all these things, amen.